know, when we come to the story of Noah and the flood, I think we had a, uh, did we have like baby bumpers on our, on our, uh, yeah, like a baby uh, crib or whatever, baby bumper, you know, like, you know, bumpers, baby bumpers are all, all around the crib with like cutesy animals and, and Noah and, you know, there was no pictures of people drowning and everything on that, uh, on that thing, but, but it was just, you know, it's kind of a, kind of a cute story is the way we, we picture it in some, in some ways anyway, um, in some aspects of, of the way that we view it in little children's books or whatever. Um, but what is this story? Is it, is it a happy story? Is it a cruel story? Is it a uh, dreadful story? Is it a real story? Or is it fake? Well, the story of Noah and the flood, uh, as, as much as we are aware of it and understanding it uh, in this text, it's a frightening story of judgment by an absolutely holy God against the depth of human wickedness and sin and rejection of him and his glory as the holy creator of all. There's nothing sentimental about it. There's nothing cute about this story. Um, it's a, it's a, it really is a picture of hor- horrendous judgment. Uh, but it's also a picture of significant mercy, God's mercy. So the way that I titled this sermon is, is the mercy of the king amid judgment. It's a picture, this, this, this really amazing picture of mercy amid significant judgment. Now, today we're going to walk through the text in a way that's different than normal. We're going from chapter 6, verse 9, all the way through chapter 8, verse 22. And because, specifically, when I write a sermon, there's, there's um, I mean, I want it to be true and, and, uh, and, and tend for it to be true and all that, but it's not inspired by God like, like this book is. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the, take the chunks of the text, and rather than spending time reading it and then expositing it, it's going to be uh, reading it a little bit by little and commenting on it throughout until we're done with that and then bringing a couple of themes to bear at the end. So if you, again, if you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 6, it'll be up on the screen, but i just really love for you to get into your Bibles. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. We'll be up and down, so if you close your Bible, keep your finger in there, because we'll be in that for a good, a good 25 minutes. All right, chapter 6, verse 9, starts out this way. These are the generations of Noah. Remember that one of the ways the books, is, it's not going to be this slow either, I'm not going to stop at every sentence, uh, but remember that, that, that we've talked about this in the past, uh, in, there's, the book is... Chunk, kind of chunked out, it's sectioned out by these, these kind of statements of these are the generations of. We've already seen that twice in Genesis. One is the generations kind of of creation, of when, when, created, when the creation happened. And then there was the generations of Adam, right? And now it's the generations of Noah. All right, verse 9 continues. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So Noah was, was righteous. It's clear he was righteous. This is not a play on words. This is not like a, um, you know, just like a, a, a positive self-assessment. Uh, he was righteous. He was living in a right relationship with God. He was living in right relationship with his neighbors and all of God's creatures. He was blameless, the way Scripture speaks of. He was walking with integrity of heart, or he might say something along the lines of he was walking in a way that is above reproach among all those around him. 
And it says also then he walked with God. Who was the last person that we saw walked with God in, the, in Genesis? What was his name? Enoch, right? So Enoch walked with God. Well, Noah walked with God as well. And Noah, of course, then is the father of these three sons who we'll get to know a little bit more in weeks to come. And what we see clearly is that Noah's character in this text, specifically as the righteous one, uh, one who walked with God and blameless, um, it's supposed to be stand, uh, stood up against the, like a, as a sharp contrast to the culture around him. So we've seen in weeks, in, in last week particular, but the weeks, last few weeks, specifically last week, that there was just a lot of wickedness all around him. And, but out of that wickedness we stand, we see this one righteous man, um, sharply contrasting the violence and lawlessness and godliness of the culture. Okay, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself uh, an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The, the length of the ark is 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Now the violence and lawlessness and godlessness of the inhabitants of the world we were introduced to again most keen, keenly last week, Genesis 6 verse 5, it says that the Lord saw, and he repeats it in this text really, but the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That, that's a significant reality that, that mankind was entirely corrupt, except for Noah. So we read in this text, in verses 11 through 15, we read of the sovereign plan and intention of the judgment of holy God against this wickedness. This is not, this is not just a reaction. This is something that he has sovereignly said, I have determined, I have determined, he says, to make an end of all flesh. This is how purposeful God is. This is how sovereign God is. He will accomplish all that he says he's going to do. And so we could stop there and just kind of cover, cover our mouth and just go, okay, God's, God's determined because of the wickedness of people, um, it's, it's so bad that he is, he's set to destroy everybody. But like immediately right after that statement of determining to have wiped out everybody, there's an immediate reality of mercy. In the plan for and provision of details regarding the ark, the, the, the boat is a big boat. The ark's a big boat. It's about 450 feet long. And if you think about a football field, the football field is 300 feet long, right? So it's bigger, longer than a football field. Um, if you've been to the ark exhibit, uh, you know how big this boat is, especially for a boat in the ancient world. Is it a big boat? Well, the text continues, verse 16. Make a roof for the ark, he says, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. Now there's some thought uh, out in the world today that there was just a regional flood that took place. Uh, in this text, specifically reading this text, there's no 
sense in that. There's, there's a, it's a global calamity, a global flood. Not just isolated to a region, but the entire world. Everything that is on the earth, not region, everything that's on the earth shall die. Verse 18. But, see the, so you got judgment, and then immediately mercy again. But, I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Once we've heard about God's promises in these first chapters to see to it that the righteous line will continue and will ultimately crush the serpent's head. This is the first time among all of these things, this is the first time we've heard the word covenant in Genesis. And, and so whenever anything is mentioned in Genesis particular, uh, the first time it's like the um, opportunity for us to recognize, hey, when this word shows up in the future, which it's going to show up in the future, over and over and over and over again, not just in Genesis, but even as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, the word covenant is there. We're introduced to this, uh, specifically this word, and we're going to talk about it in just a few weeks, um, about the covenant between God and Adam and, and the world. Um, or uh, Noah, I should say. Um, so we want to keep our eyes peeled for this word covenant as we move forward into this text and into the text to come. Verse 19. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that's eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. As he, Noah's righteous, right? So what does he do? Well, he did all that God commanded him. And the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So we think about animals coming in two by two, right? Two by two, regularly, of course, much is true in that, just two by two. But in verses two and three of chapter seven, we see something different. It's either that God has like altered the plan in some way, or he has got something else in mind, because it's not just two by two. In verses two and three, we see the command to bring in one pair of the unclean animals and seven pairs of the clean animals. Now, why, why is that so? Why is something so different than just the two by two? Well, it's, it's in the midst of judgment, there is significant mercy. Um, God is already, even before the judgment has been enacted, he's already for the other side of the judgment. He, he's preparing Noah. Whether Noah fully gets it or not in that moment is, 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 is not, not really in the text. We don't know. But at this point, the clean and unclean laws that were more informed in the law of Moses haven't been written down uh, yet. But it seems that there's already some sort of sacrificial system, some sort of um, sacrificial system in place at this point, because in chapter 8, what we're going to see is that Noah, the first thing he does after the flood is to sacrifice those clean animals to God. It's a Thanksgiving offering. You, you, you see... In the midst of judgment, in the midst of this plan for judgment, God is undergirding it with mercy 
there's mercy to be had because God is merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Verse 4. That was helpful, Brad. Thank you. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I've made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And again, Noah's righteous, right? So Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the day, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heaven were opened. We've already seen this in some of the descriptions, even of the creation, of what, why all these specific details, except for the fact to say that these things are true. It happened in real time, in real space. Matter of fact, um, it, the flood came when Noah was 600 years old, um, in the second month, and on the 17th day. Verse 12, rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. It's a lot of rain. It was just a few weeks ago, right, where we had a bunch of rain. Um, I had to go out and buy a dehumidifier, um, used a, a shop vac to clean up water in the basement. Um, uh, and uh, when I went to Ace for the, for the dehumidifier, they thought I wanted to buy a sump pump, which I already have, but, uh, but the uh, sump pumps were all sold out uh, because people had come in. And of course, the Ace hardware near me is like you walk through a, a, a waterfall as you're, as you're walking in because the roof is so bad. Um, so much rain. We were talking about a day, not, not even a day, hours of downpour. This was 40 days and 40 nights. You think about California with all the rain. You think about Florida with all the rain. And how much flooding is there in just days, just a handful of days or, or a handful of hours. We know that flash floods happen just after a couple of hours of heavy downpour. Well, 40 days and 40 nights. Can you, can you imagine a torrential downpour like that? How, how depressing would it be 40 days and 40 nights of torrential downpour. How much downpour can you handle? A day? Two days? Depressing. Well, consider the number 40 for a moment as well. The number 40 shows up often in the Bible. And think about Moses killing the Egyptian in Exodus. He fled to Midian, where he spent 40 years in the desert tending flocks. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses interceded on Israel's behalf for 40 days and 40 nights. The law specified a maximum number of lashes that a man could receive for a crime, setting the limit at 40. The Israelite spies took 40 days to spy out Canaan. The Israelites wandered for 40 years. And before Samson uh, was delivered, Israel served the Philistines for 40 years. Goliath taunted Saul's army for 40 days before David shows up to kill him. When Elijah fled from Jezebel, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. Number 40 also appears in the prophecies of Ezekiel or, or Jonah. And in the New Testament, of course, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for how many days? 40 days. 
and 40 nights, and we could go on and on. Generally, the storyline of the Bible, in the storyline of the Bible, the, the, the number 40 is the number that tells us that God's people are in some sort of trial, some sort of testing. So verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and his three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now, use your imagination again just for a moment to consider what that must have felt like for Noah. The rain was beginning, the years of preparation done, and they went into the ark obediently. The Lord shutting the door behind them without any sense of the duration of what it was they were going to go through or what it was going to look like after the fact. What's going to happen? What are they going to find? Will there ever be a day where the door opens again? Verse 17 continues. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark and arose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all of the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. The waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, The ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the tenth month, and the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now again, lots of information in that, and we could we could stop and look at all the trees, right? But but back backing up, saying, what is it again? It's all this information, this specific, very specific information, details of depth of water, the destruction of all flesh, a real timeline. And in all of that, what we see is that God is sovereign and God is deciding when the judgment was done. When it would start, when it was done. When the waters would start, when the waters would decrease. The top of the mountains were seen again. Let's continue, verse 6. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took 
her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. And then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that's with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. It had been about a year in, in this ark. Let's just finish the text. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So we come to the end of the portion of this story, and we see Moses offering a sacrifice, a humble sacrifice, a, 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 a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God that was pleasing to him. And then we read that God promises no more judgment, specifically judgment like this kind of judgment that we just read about. While there are other kinds of judgments, there will be no more judgment that will wipe out everything and everyone on the planet. As long as the earth remains, we can count on what we've grown used to day and night, weeks and months and years and seasons until the very last day. Now there's all sorts of places we could stop and focus in on. There's so much in this whole text. We don't have time to, even if we had plenty of time, we still wouldn't necessarily uncover everything that's here, but let me share a few things. The first thing I think we need to understand is that divine judgment is real. Divine judgment is real. Oftentimes when it comes to God's judgment, mankind's response is to blame God for being mean and vindictive. Um, talk with somebody about, about the reality of hell and where, where does one go, but there's no way. There's just no way that God would be that mean. But the emphasis that we've seen uh, accumulated over the last handful of weeks and we're talking about like spending, what, like over three weeks, like an hour and a half, uh, two, two, two hours, two and a half hours together thinking about things. All the hundreds of years of mankind's absolute and growing wickedness and rejection of God. That, that's the context we're in. This is not about God being mean. This is about mankind rejecting the glory and holiness of God outright. 
And the reality is mankind deserves the significantly devastating judgment. You and I deserve that judgment. We who were once dead in our sins, we were at enmity with God. We were not just neutral, we were hostile. We were wicked. The most wicked person on the planet? Probably not as far as, as, far as outcomes, but the reality, or in a, in a relational kind of stuff, but the, the reality is our sin against holy God is enormous. Now certainly it may be hard to understand and something the world of history and the modern world despises and rejects. That is the judgment of God. But until we understand that our rejection of the holy God who created us and is the one whom we have been made for to reflect and to make much of his name and not our name, striving to make a name for ourselves is what we tend to do in self-dependence and self-sufficiency and outright sinful actions is a, is a when, until we realize that those things are shockingly offensive, horrendously offensive against the holy God, there's really nothing in this book that's going to make much sense. Uh, maybe a list of things that where you can like become a better person, be more like Jesus, be more like Noah, at least in this portion of the story, or dare to be a Daniel, be strong like David. What we're being shown here is this story in this story is the clear and unmitigated reality of God's action as the righteous judge of his creation, the one to whom all people are accountable. He's our creator. He's the holy one. He is entirely other. He is why we exist. He is why we breathe. He is, he is everything. It's hard for us to imagine the difficult images of people drowning on account of the flood, right? That's why it doesn't make its way into baby patterns. Um, it's difficult for us to understand, really, or imagine any kind of horrific judgment. Even, even the judgment of God against the wickedness of man in eternal hell. Again, it's, it's disconcerting to us. And it's maddening to those who might hear about something like that. And even within Christendom, there's a sense of almost embarrassment about it. Our, our issue is one of lack of understanding of God's holiness and a lack of understanding of the seriousness of our sin. What we're to consider most keenly is the reality of God's very right and pure and good and devastating judgment on the treachery and wickedness and sin of his creation in their utter rejection of him. Men and women who were created to believe on him. Men and women who were created to trust him, to walk in obedience to him, to enjoy him, to love him, even as they have been loved, and to spread the glory of God among the nations. The, the issue is that, that those, of, those of his creation, all of mankind who were meant for that, reject him wholesale and turn entirely away from him and glory in themselves. This, this judgment then against this kind of wickedness, this kind of rejection, wholesale rejection is all-encompassing. In this, in this case, in this story, 
every living thing died save Noah and his family who were in the ark of salvation. And look, you may think God, again, to be simply an angry God like many think he is, but God has actually walked in so much grace, so much mercy and patience as he's waited. He continued to call them to repentance, to trust, him, to, call, to, to trust him, to call out to him, but they didn't listen. You think about the patience of God just, just even while the ship was being built. A hundred years. How patient was he? We don't even know if anybody else, if anybody else had repented, if they could have hopped on board. We don't know the story. The reality is that no one cared. All mocked. All turned away. Except for Noah and his family. God is so far from simply flying off the handle like man does. If God was vindictive, if God were like just, you do something and he smacks you, well, then God flies up the handle maybe, but God is holy, good, and great. And at risk of repetition, Exodus 34, he introduces himself as the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You hear all the mercy, so much mercy, and yet he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Love and mercy to thousands of generations. That's how great his love is. Judgment is nevertheless real. He was patient and enduring long, suffering with the growing of wickedness of mankind, and yet there was a time when the floods came. There was a time when judgment would come. He was determined to judge as the merciful, loving holy God. Now consider the question, and maybe you've considered this before, but did the flood really happen? And certainly, one of the options is to say no. It's not a good option, but it is an option. It's an option for you. It's an option for people today. You could reject it and count it as myth or legend, but if the flood really happened, then it the means there is a God who is greater than you could ever imagine more holy than you could ever fathom, and, and that our sin actually is much more gruesome and much more horrendous than we could ever know. It means that while God is merciful and long-suffering, he is also a God who will by no means let wickedness go unpunished. And it, and, it, and it means that we need to heed the call to repent. It doesn't mean that first and foremost we look out, yeah, that's right, it means we look inside and we say, yeah, that's right. We heed the call to repent. We heed the call to believe on him, to trust him, and walk in obedience to him ourselves. Far greater than a nice, cutesy decoration pattern for your baby room or a fun story for your children, this story, now, I want to encourage you, if you tell, your, if you tell this story, you know, Tell it in context with your kids, right? Uh, not, not all the gruesome details, but the, the reality is that this story is an, an entirely enormous means to understand the reality of who God is and who we are 
and where mankind's hope is and where mankind's hope is not. This is what the story of Noah and the flood and the ark is about overarchingly. Now, if you're up on ancient Near East history at all, you know that there's other cultures. I've mentioned this last week a little bit. They had their own flood stories. There's the Sumerians or the Akkadians or the Babylonians or others. The most famous one being the Gilgamesh epic that we spoke of last week a little bit. And rather than causing us to think that, well, gosh, those false religions had this flood story, then maybe, maybe this, is not, this is not true. This is what the reality is. The fact that all these countries, all these nations, all these peoples have a flood story makes it seem as though the flood was real, truly happened. The differences in the stories are clear in that in the other stories, they speak of the gods sending the flood because the people are making too much noise. They're irritated. The gods, that is the false gods that we'll come to understand, are gods of the nations and the table of nations non-going. Interestingly, when the flood is actually unleashed, the Gilgamesh epic says this. You can read this if you look, look in the, just you can type it in. This is, what, this is what it says, verbatim. The gods were frightened by the flood and retreated, ascending to the heaven of Anu, the gods were cowering like dogs, crouching by the outer wall. Ishtar shrieked like a woman in childbirth. Now, I don't want to confuse too much here, but these fallen angels, I, these, these demons, these, these false gods, I think, I think, well, they probably did shriek. That probably is somewhat true. Maybe it's true. I don't, I don't know. The reality is when Yahweh speaks, demons believe and they do what? Shudder. <laughs> this is really interesting. The gods were cowering like dogs, crouching by the outer wall. Ishtar shrieked like a woman in childbirth. They were freaked out, absolutely, by what? By the power of Yahweh. This was some of the reality of the world the Israelites were dealing with and the cultures around them. And what we see about, though, the God of Genesis, the God of the Bible, is that he is obviously entirely different. Not fearful whatsoever. Certainly not shrieking like a woman in childbirth or crouching by the outer wall or whatever. He is the sovereign Lord of the flood. He is the Holy One. He is deliberate. He is patient. He's utterly and always in control. All absolutely merciful. He shows mercy when he wants to show mercy. He judges when he judges because he is holy and good and sovereign and omnipotently so. Thank God that he is absolutely merciful and slow to anger and filled with steadfast love, but won't let sin go unpunished. Now some believe the God of the Old Testament to, again, be mean and angry, and, and they would prefer to go to Jesus who is more meek and mild, but listen to what Jesus himself says as he speaks about the flood story in Matthew chapter 24. We shared this last week as well, but this is what he says. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Me, Jesus. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, while Noah was building an ark, in their very sight, 
people kept living as though the coming judgment of the flood was an absolute joke. But when the flood came, when the judgment came, all who were left were those who had gone into the ark of salvation. And Jesus says to us that there's another day of judgment coming, the day of the Lord where all will come before holy God and give an account. And if you believe what Jesus says, you will also believe that though the warning of the coming judgment is there, and it is there today, even in this moment, people will be going about their business as though the coming judgment is a joke or something entirely fictitious or absolutely delusional. And yet when the judgment comes, says the gentle and kind Jesus, it will be as real and devastating as the flood except eternally so. The question then is, are you ready for that? Or are you among those who are going about your business, presuming upon the patience of God? And that's the question we need to ask. Divine judgment is real. Secondly, we see that the new creation also is real. Let's be a little bit more brief. As we've spoken of on numerous occasions, the story that we come to in Genesis is just greater, all through Scripture, greater than we could ever imagine. There's so much more to go into than what I'm going to speak of today, but the biblical paradigm that we're getting in this, in this, no, this flood story is this, this kind of idea of decreation and recreation. So we've had the creation already, right? Well, now in the flood, we see this decreation happening and another creation, a recreation happening. In chapter 7, verse 11, we see that not only is it raining, but the fountains of the great deep burst open. Now, as a side note, Brian Baxter sent me a link a few weeks ago, I think he sent it to a bunch of us, um, that unsurprisingly restated scientific findings for a massive amount of water about 400 miles deep. That's three times the amount of the water on the surface. It shouldn't be surprising to us that this is the case. Um, and how many evidences are there for the veracity of God's word? So much evidence. And if you're truly looking for more information, or if you have some sort of intellectual question, then there are plenty of reasons to believe everything we're reading. But the primary point is that the amount of water from the flood and the amount of water that came from the great deep in essence was a decreating of the planet. In the first chapter of Genesis, uh, during creation, we saw a watery chaos where God separates the waters, putting waters in the sky and then waters down in the deep. And what do we see now? Well, the water is coming out of the deep and water is coming out of the sky and creating this chaos once again. And one, and so, but in the middle of this chaos that's happening in the flood and the decreation that's happening, there's this, there's this movement that happens again. And it says in chapter 8 that um, we, we know from, from the initial creation that when God was creating, there was the, the spirit, the ruach, the wind um, of God that was, 
that was hover, it was hovering and blowing. And in this case as well, what do we see is God's wind hovering over in the act of recreation. As the waters recede, we see the recreation of the separating of the waters with the waters and God making a new land, a new earth, and a new creation. There is so much to go into with this specific reality of this decreating and recreating and all the examples of what God is doing from Genesis 1 to Genesis 7 or Genesis 1 and chapter, and chapter 8. We'll see more about it when we come back to Genesis in a couple of weeks, but it becomes clear that Adam, I mean, that Noah is, is like a second Adam, or the next Adam, a new Adam. The parallels are, are plentiful between the two of them, and we see the story of creation almost happening again after the flood. What we come to in this text is a new page in history. Before the flood and after the flood is one of the key and massive markers in world history. And it gives a clear picture of not just the righteous judgment of God and the devastation, but the recreating of a new world that God was mercifully making on the earth in that day. Now what we'll come to see is that that which is recreated ends up going through the same Destruction. The same sin, same path. Two lines, seed of the serpent, the seed of Eve. All the way to this day. This picture of decreation and recreation is a picture that we will yet once more see when the king returns to judge. When the heavens will shake and the earth will burn and the wicked will be judged and yet behold he makes all things new in the new heavens and the new earth for all who trust in the righteous seed, Jesus Christ alone. Again, the question is, are you ready for that day? Are, are, are you ready for that day? And for those who have trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, are you living in the joy of that promised day today, though for a little while you've been burdened by many trials? He will make all things new. Finally, the grace of God is real. The grace of God is real. Divine judgment is real. The new creation is real. Well, how so? The grace of God is real. Consider Noah with me for a moment. He's, he's righteous, he's blameless, he walks with God. And then throughout the entire story, we read again that Noah did as the Lord commanded over and over again. What we see from Noah is that he believes God's word, he acts on God's word, he follows God's word, he believes God, he's obedient, he has faith in God. It's a sure and certain hope that stems from belief. This is, this is Noah in this portion of his life. This is what the author of Hebrews states clearly in Hebrews 11, verse 7, where he says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now think about the temptations. Uh, that Noah may have faced over the hundred or so years it took to build the ark. Imagine all the mocking. Imagine all the mocking that he received, and yet he continued entrusting himself to the God in whom he trusted and believed. He had heard God tell him that a judgment was coming, that no one truly could have really understood or really seen, and everyone around them thinks that the guy is bonkers. He's nuts. Noah has gone astray, or he's some sort of crazy old religious kook. 
But Noah had faith. He believed God for something he could not see. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Is it not true of all who believe God and his word? Is it not true for all those who believe God that while we can't see him, we still believe his word about a coming judgment and the way of salvation, the one way of salvation and the hope of heaven, no matter what anybody says? This takes faith. And and then even when he gets in the boat in the seemingly endless days of monotony and all the mess of the animals around him and the eight who were in the boat and the incessant rain and the lack of sunshine, he did not know how long it was going to be In all of that, all of the crazy, all the stuff that we just kind of read right past and don't really consider, put yourself in that situation, all the difficulty. I mean, assuming there's so many days that he's a a year, let's say there's sickness, let's say there's uh, discomfort, let's say there's just a, it's just a nasty place to be in some ways. It's a very, very, very difficult. He trusted in God. He had faith in him. And, And truly, he's quite an example, at least to this point in the story. But, but the point is not so much about Noah's faith as much as the depths and breadth of mercy that God bestows on all who trust him and believe what he says. This point is clearly seen when we recognize what the ancient Israelites could have seen clearly in their language. And we can see it in our text as well. It's just a little bit more difficult to see. There's a literary tool that we've already come across in this in Genesis, and we we could broaden it out to more than what I'm going to say today, but there's, there's, there's these chiasms that happen. There are literary structures in the text where we can kind of understand uh, what main points are. It's like the, the, first, the first section. I'm going to show you in a moment. We'll, we'll, we'll walk through it together. But it's, it's like the main point is understood by this kind of um, uh, a, a truth and then another truth, and then another truth, and another truth that, that kind of stems this way. And then like underneath, it goes the other way in, in like mirroring the top. So it's, it's like it's, uh, well, we'll see it together, but it's like this. And it actually forms a, one half of a, of a, of a key, a, 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 an X. So it's like if you have the X there, you got this, this kind of motion here, and then the motion out. And so in this case, there's this number chiasm that I want to point to, and it starts in verse 4. And so it'll be, I think, hopefully it'll, it'll show up properly on here. You won't be able to necessarily in the back read it uh, very well, um, but here we got for in seven days I'll send rain on the earth. That's the first thing. The next one says, and after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So we got seven, and we got seven again. What's the next one? And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And then there's the next one. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. So what we have here is we got, we got the number 7, we got the number 7, we got the number 40, and we got the number 150. And that's the top half of the chiasm. And you see it's we, we, moving, it, moving it this way. So what's the next? So in chapter 8, verse 3, at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Next one. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark. Next one. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. In verse 10, the next one. And then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. So if you look at that, you see this is a literary structure. Seven, seven, 40, 150. Underneath, 150, 40, seven, seven. Just this 
this chiastic structure to be able to understand, hey, what's the main point? Well, what's the main point is going to be smack dab in the middle, and the main point is, but God remembered Noah. That's the main point of this text. And honestly, if you back it a little further from just even the number chiasm, there's a greater chiasm, there's a greater chiasm through the whole through the whole story. And it all focuses in on this reality of God remembering Noah. It's the turning point in the story. This is the hinge, per se. God remembered Noah. He did not forget him amid the judgment. He was mindful of Noah. You hear the mercy. He was ready to act on Noah's behalf based on the previous commitment he had made. He would be merciful as he promised. Salvation is certain and life will go on. Even amid the judgment against all the wickedness of mankind, God shuts his righteous man and his family into the ark, saving him to one day rebuild his creation. And inside the ark, there is blessing. Inside the ark, there is salvation. Outside the ark, cursing and destruction and death. In the ark, there is the family of God, the household of God. This is the picture of the true church. All who believe God and his word called upon him, trusting in Jesus Christ alone. This is the ark of our salvation. Now, one thing I love about this church building in particular is the architecture. Um, I don't like that we have roof issues. I don't like the, a number of our HVAC system and all that kind of stuff, but, I, but I'm thankful for it. But, but I come in here. Remember, Dan and I came in here. We prayed before we had the building and everything, and we had just come back uh, from overseas, and, and uh, I remember praying and cr crying that God would give us a building like this. Pastor Kale took a, a picture a couple of weeks ago. Actually, I had to go back to another picture I took a, little, a while back because of, because of how you had it. But um, each row of stained glass is a straight line. If you uh, were to stand out underneath everything, it's just like this, these straight lines going across. And it just seems like, okay, it's, that's cool. Um, but if you were to stand in the middle right there or lay down, put your head on the grate and look up. Um, what you would see is, is that. And, and so you say, okay, what's the big deal about that? Um, the great deal about this uh, is that there's, there's two letters associated with this. And whichever way you look at it, if you look at it sideways, look at it the other way, it's this way all the way around. It's an ancient symbol, ancient church symbol called the Yoda key. The iota is the letter I in Greek, and that's down the middle. It's the first letter of the name of Jesus in Greek. And then X, that X across the middle there, whichever way you look at it, there's an X. The X is the letter key for Christos, and Jesus Christ. And I, I swear when... I looked at that, and I realized, so, so when we're overseas, we see, we go to these old Byzantine temples, Byzantine churches, I should say, and there's a big dome in the middle, and who's at the top of the dome? But Jesus. Jesus is there. Um, may or may not like the imagery, whatever, but the reality is, Jesus is at the, he's the head of the church. He's there. All of our prayers 
through Jesus. This reality here to me as well, just as the Yodaki, is, is a beautiful reality. It also shows up in our logo. If you look at our logo, you'll see the Yodaki along with the cross in the middle and being centered. Um, the reality is that the church, this church, is not like this church building is the, is the ark of salvation, but this church, when we gather together, we, we gather under Christ. We gather in Christ. We, we, when, we, when we pray, when we look up, we're looking up and we're seeing Christ. We love Christ. We trust Christ. We believe in Christ. We believe in the, our salvation. He is the ark of our salvation. This church, this sanctuary, I don't know whether they did that on purpose, whatever, but the reality is, historically, um, you know, we're in line with Orthodox Christianity and the symbols. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, again, it's not a count on the physical building that we find God's blessing. It's not the building where his favor is or where his mercy is known, but it is being again in the ark of his family, his church, his called out ones, where we can sail amid a flood around us of evil, knowing that we will be kept safe and preserved and presented blameless with great joy on that final day to experience the joys of the new heavens and the new earth. The grace of God is, is real. The grace of God is vibrant. The grace of God is our hope. Amid the reality of the fact that the judgment is real. Makes you look at the stained glass a little different, doesn't it? All the facets of the light coming down. It's beautiful. But let me get to the conclusion. Ultimately, the story of Noah and the ark lies in the greater narrative of Scripture. The story of Noah and the flood and the ark is a picture of the king's mercy amid judgment. And of course, how much more do we see this on the cross of Calvary? Where God proved once and for all that he would sacrifice everything to make a people for himself to dwell with forever. Even if it means sacrificing, not the planet, sacrificing his one and only son. The king's mercy amid judgment on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, for our sake, he, that is God, made him to be sin, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you, do you see the judgment there? Jesus took on our sin and paid the penalty of it, that is death. And, and is not also in that judgment, is there not mercy? And not just mercy in the penalty of our sins being paid for and done away with, but mercy in that we've also been given all the righteousness of God that we would enjoy life forevermore today and in the new creation to come. It's a beautiful reality of the king's mercy amid judgment. This is the truth that motivates us to a life given over to God in thankful obedience. When Noah stepped out of the ark, what was it he did? He didn't build a city. He didn't make a name for himself. I'm sure he cheered when he got on the ground, but the first thing he really did, he offered a sacrifice to God, a humble sacrifice. He didn't respond in disinterest. Thanks for saving me. He didn't respond with boredom. Rather, he leaves the ark and he presents a thank offering with the clean animals that God had directed him over a year prior to take on board. He had prepared the sacrifice before the flood. Before the judgment, the very first thing he does 
is humbly give thanks to God for the mercy and grace of their deliverance and salvation and presents a sacrifice to him, a sacrifice that God himself su supplied for him. This is, this is being constrained to live in grateful obedience to the king on account of the love of and deliverance of God. As those who have been delivered from the judgment to come, we should be the most joyful and, and thankful and humble of people. There's not a guilt trip there. It's just a reality when, when, when there's not joy in our hearts on account of the gospel, something is not right. Something is askew. And when I, and when I mean joy, too, I don't mean I don't mean that life is um, a, a, a pot of roses, but our hope is secure. Our salvation is sure. The mercies of God are real. We rejoice that our names, by the mercies of God, are written in the Lamb's book of life. Living day by day as living sacrifices to God, yielding to Him in obedience in every way on account of His mercies that have been shown to us. Romans 12, verse 1. Our joy, again, is not founded in our circumstances, friends, but our joy, our unspeakable joy that Peter speaks of, is entirely wrapped up in this truth that according to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's what we rejoice over. In the middle of circumstances, in the middle of the uncertainties of being in the ark, of not sure, when's this going to end? I don't know when's this going to end. And all the stink around you and all the difficulty, God is with you in his ark of salvation. He's set you in his ark of salvation in Christ. And he is going to deliver you one day finally. He has delivered you. You are in the ark, but the new creation has not come yet. That day is yet to come. And we long for that day. And we have joy towards that day because of that passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, that according to God's great mercy, he caused us to be born again, to a living hope. In Christ, we have so much to be joyful for. We, we, we've been shown such mercy. So does this mercy, does the truth of this mercy affect the way you live? Does it affect your obedience to Jesus? And I put it in that order because... 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, let the love of Christ constrain you. Let the love of Christ compel you. Let the love of Christ inform. Let the love of Christ enable the gift of the Spirit enabling you. The love of Christ enabling you to walk in obedience. Does this mercy of God affect your marriage, your singleness, your parenting, your work, your, your leisure, your thoughts. I want you to consider picking up a book that we have in the back. It's just for free. Um, and pick up that book and take it home if you already have a book and you know somebody else that could use it. If you already have that specific book and use it, it's, it's just called Gentle and Lowly. Story about the love of Christ. The love of God towards you. Growing in that and letting that inform the way that you live, the way that we walk. But we're left with one question before the worship team comes. And this one question is, is this. Are you 
student, adult, kid, child, are you, are you in the boat? Are you living by faith in God, believing on his word? Do you trust in Jesus for your salvation? Have you asked him to forgive you? Trusting in a salvation now for a most dreadful judgment, not one of water on that day, but of fire that is yet to come. The, the, the truth is, God has made a way for you to be delivered, be saved from that coming judgment if you will just believe on him. Trust him to be saved from the coming judgment, to live in the boat of his merciful salvation in Christ, trusting Christ, believing on Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Will you trust him today? Will you come to him? Will you believe on him? Will you just give your life to him? I pray you do. Let me pray.